This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, it's Sean Elling. Maybe you heard, I'll be taking over as the main host of Vox Conversations this fall, and I'm still coming at you on Mondays until then. But I wanted to let you know that this month we have something a bit different for you in the feed on Thursdays. It's a collaboration with our colleagues at Even Better, Vox's new section about our individual and collective well-being. These four episodes of Even Better's special series on Vox Conversations will be hosted by Julia Furlan. Take it away, Julia. Thanks, Sean. I'm Julia Furlan, and I'm your host for Even Better, a special series on Vox Conversations. Even Better is a new section from Vox.com focused on helping people live better lives, individually and collectively, from mental health to relationships of all kinds, to work, money, social justice, and more. Over the course of four episodes, we're going to be exploring just a few of these topics through conversations with some really interesting people. I'm very, very, very excited for you to hear them. So we hope you get subscribed or stay subscribed to Vox Conversations, whatever. You're here, we're here, and you can hear even better every Thursday in August. And now let's get into our first episode. For over a decade, Bria Baker has been a student organizer, an activist, and a strategist for national progressive movements. At Yale in 2015, Bria led a movement to address white supremacy on campus. In 2017, she was one of the national organizers of the Women's March in D.C. She's been addressing issues like police brutality, gun violence, and social justice advocacy throughout her whole career. And her work is rooted in action. I wanted to talk to Bria about finding small ways to bring activism into your life wherever you're at. Lately, it feels like there are a lot of just overlapping crises. Repeals of civil rights, legislative attacks on trans people, mass shootings, the climate catastrophe, not to mention the pandemic, which is still definitely not over, not even close to over. And there's another one just coming down the pike. Ever heard of monkeypox? I don't know about you, but it's easy to feel exhausted and hopeless, wondering what I can do as one small person moving through the world, just trying my best. Bria is here to address all of that and more, and fundamentally to give us some guidance on achievable, concrete things that you can do, that I can do right now to push back against the creeping existential dread. Because sometimes it helps to do something. Well, Bria... Thank you so much for being here with me. It's a wonderful thing to get to spend time with you and to spend time with your work. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So, you know, it's 2022. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to start this conversation by asking you, what have you been doing lately to combat any existential dread you may be feeling about being here 
in 2022. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. You know, I think I have had a lot of practice feeling a lot of dread over the last 10 years as an activist, to be honest. Yeah. It's just feel like a constant state that has, yes, definitely gotten worse, but constant state of feeling like what is happening around me. And it just feels like an onslaught, which it is. So yeah. unplugging in general and finding some time in nature and grounding yourself is so important. That's great. So stepping away from the news. So wait, scrolling on your phone like 18 or so hours a day, that's not recommended? <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I've been trying and it's not working. <laughs> it's not helpful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we think we're helpful, though. Here's the funny part. Like, we convince ourselves that by staying tapped in, we are better serving the movement. Mm -hmm. And then what is actually happening is, like, we're exhausted, we're desensitized, and we know a lot of what's happening, but it doesn't make us any more strategic at disrupting it. So, yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. I've found myself doing a worse and worse job of unplugging. And I think it's mm. a really good reminder to that I got to do it. Yeah, it's so important. So I want to start with some of the writing that you've done about radical love. Mm. When we think about the state of the world or we think about the things that are really hard to hold and hard to carry, it's very easy to forget about the people who came before us, like, for example, Bell Hooks. Yeah. You've written about Bell Hooks's theory on radical love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you define radical love and how do you perform it? How do you bring that into your life? Yeah, I think for me, radical love, it gives me something to fight for versus being constantly in opposition to or in defense against something. I think that sometimes in being defensive, we have no vision for what we are trying to build. Mm. And reading Bell Hooks's work on not just radical love, but also around masculinity, around relationship building, I think she is so masterful at giving us something to look forward to. And so if I was defining radical love, I would say it is care as a politic, mm. which I think sometimes the word love and the word care can be used so often that it loses its meaning for us. But she really grounds us in the fact that if we lived our lives, not in the way that the world and our society looks now, but in the way we want our society and our world to look in the future, then we would have to be more loving. Because any of us who say that we don't want to live in a world of violence would have to communicate more clearly and not allow situations to escalate or feelings to fester or for us to believe that people are irredeemable. We would have to believe in one another's ability and capacity to grow and evolve and meet the moment that we're building towards, not just the moment that we're at. And I love that because that doesn't make me feel jaded. It reminds me that we all have inherent worth and value that is worth loving and caring for even if that person is not as tapped into that part of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think what I hear from what you're saying is a lot about compassion as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder in that action, in that reminding yourself that people have the capacity to love and to care for themselves, for their community, how do you connect that to action? How do you connect that heady, thoughtful, humanity-centric view to the actions that you take when you want to do something about the general state of the world? 
Yeah, I think that is where, yeah, as you said, a lot of people get lost because they have these beautiful values that they are espousing and then their day-to-day lives don't match up with it. Mm -hmm. And again, I think radical love is, at least the way that Bell Hooks writes is very specific into how you need to be implemented into your life. And so for me, the world that I want to live in requires me to spend my money in certain strategic ways, like as a reflection of radical love. Mm. So I can't spend money with people and companies that don't match my values and then wonder why companies like that exist. I am keeping them alive. Right. Even if I think some people convince themselves like, oh, well, my $15 isn't going to stop anything, but your $15 is keeping it going. And it's not just the divestment piece. It's also the investment piece, which again is the, what am I building towards and not just against? So it's not just I'm boycotting Amazon. It's also, I am now spending my money with a bunch of small family-owned businesses that are way more grateful for my little $15 than Jeff Bezos ever would be. True. And that's just one action of just like how I spend my money. But even, you know, my sister's joke and they're like, when did you become like, Yanla Van Zandt or like Oprah, like, why are you always mediating everything? And I'm just like, I think the deeper I got into activism, I realized that my activism can't just stop at the marches and the petition signing and the donations. Mm-hmm. I have to exist in my family in a way that is healing and that is loving and that is acknowledging all of the things. So I don't know, it can still feel heady. That sounds so tiring. Yeah. <laughs> it's not though, you know, I think it is actually easier done than said. Mm. It is one of the few things, in my opinion, that could be easier done than said. I think it just requires you to have the willpower to. And so I'm willing to pause and not respond based on my gut instincts. And also to not shame myself for my gut instincts, because if my first thought is to be a little petty, that's okay. But I didn't act on the pettiness. And so now I'm like patting myself on the back like, wow, old me would have done something so different in this situation. But I have agency and choice to be and do something different. And I think it is what actually allows me to be a better activist because I think in my day-to-day life, I am not really angry all the time. I am loving all the time. Mm. And that love shows up to the protest too, where it's like, I love this person enough to say they shouldn't have been shot 60 times in Ohio. Mm. I love this child enough to say they shouldn't have gone to a July 4th parade and left an orphan. I love community enough to fight for unions and to boycott spaces that are not treating their workers the way that I would want their workers to be treated. And so I think it always feels like an act of love as opposed to an act of aggression. And that is a really helpful shift because when I started my activism, it was just, I'm angry and I want the world and the protests I go to to be my rage room. Right. You know? Right, right. (laughs) And that wasn't serving me. Well, and also like going back to that well of anger can be really exhausting. And Mm -hmm. if you sort of tap into like you said, love and care as a politic. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean? I want to unpack like love as a politic. What does that mean? So for example, one example of what love as a politic feels like for me is that even when I don't know enough about an issue, I don't need a master's in environmental justice and climate change to feel love for this planet, to feel awe when I look at nature and to want better for it than what we are currently doing. It has freed me a lot to not feel like I need to know everything, but to trust what love is directing me to do. So sometimes I'll get into arguments with people and they're like, well, you can't even fully explain all of these things to me. And it's like, I don't have to. Love is telling me that I shouldn't do that to someone that I love or something that I love or some place that I love. And 
that has been helpful to me. You're touching on something I wanted to ask about because it's something that I come up against a lot, actually. And that is the question of how to respond when someone else is judging you or mocking you for your values. Mm. I have someone in my life who loves to push my buttons about the things that I believe in and the ways that I like aspire to live my life. People can take the fact that you care deeply as an opportunity to belittle you. Mm-hmm. How do you respond with love to that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. And I've definitely been in those places. I think recently I've gotten better at sifting through and understanding people's intention that they're not telling me. Hmm. And so that is like my first step is why are you pushing back? And what I found is that there are mostly two groups of people where some are earnest, but they're flailing because something that they believe deeply in is being pushed back against. And that is definitely going to be jarring. And so they're kind of like holding onto it really strongly, but also like keeping the door cracked for you to walk in through. Mm -hmm. And then there's another group that is quite literally just trolling you and has no interest in having the conversation or going in a back and forth. And for both groups, I will start with like a general question that helps me gauge which one you are. And then if you're in the latter group, the conversation will end there because I know that I'm not going to be helpful here. And maybe that person can be reached, but just not by me. They may be reached by loved ones or people that know them intimately, but they're not going to be reached by me, stranger on the internet who they're trying to beef with in DMs. Right, right, right. I do think a lot of people do want to debate. Like, I'm not here to debate you. I am open to a conversation. Mm -hmm. And for that, I want to like get to the root of it. And if the person is like, I'm here for a conversation too, or they respond somewhat affirmatively, even if I can tell they still disagree with me, I'm still going to be open to the conversation. Right. And then from there, I try to get away from the detail back and forth. And this is even something that I apply in my day-to-day life. So example, like me and my wife will get into an argument and I find that if we're so focused on the nitty gritty of, I never said that, or yes, you did. I remember you said it exactly like that. And I'm like, now we're fighting over, did I say those exact words versus how did you feel leaving the conversation? And what was my intention and impact in the conversation? You know, I want to ask something about that, which is like, I really try and be my best self most days. I really do. Mm -hmm. But Sometimes in the moment, that's really hard. And I wonder how you manage that and how you handle that for yourself when someone is deliberately trying to attack you or somebody is trolling you. Mm. Are there ways that you slow down and try to, I don't know, see someone's humanity? What do you do to try and move through those hard moments of conflict as an organizer? And how do you do it without biting back? Yeah, I I love all of the language you're using of slowing down and like feeling the things mm-hmm. because I think that's exactly what I do. And I think it's a lot easier when the conversation is happening digitally because you can quite literally walk away from the phone. Right. And I think that is something that a lot of people lose sight of when they just like respond immediately to something. Mm. You do not owe that person an immediate response at all. And you don't have to be that keyboard warrior person who's like sending (laughs) paragraphs to this person, like free yourself from the. And I think that's part of it is like both I recognize that person's humanity and I recognize my own humanity enough to say, I don't have to put up with the way that they're treating me and I can walk away. Mm. I will quite literally block people so fast or just turn the phone off so fast because it's like, I would rather 
end our communication than say something that I would later regret. And maybe blocking someone didn't serve the moment, but my silence is better than me saying something that I'm not going to feel good about later. So that's one thing. If I'm in person or if the stakes are a bit higher. Yeah, in person, what would you do? If it's someone that I know, that is the most difficult one. When it's someone that you love and you are hearing a conversation or experiencing behavior that is really like hurtful. A lot of it is similar, but it has to take place differently is like separating myself. And so I'll have conversations with like my father or cousins or whatever the case may be where I'm like, you know what, dad, I have to walk away because this conversation is more personal for me than it is for you. And I'm hurting right now Mm. or something along those lines. And honestly, it's good because now he has to sit there and think about, well, what did I say? If I really love this person, like I say I do, then that should affect me that they are affected by this conversation. And I'll quite literally walk away and leave. If it's something that I am going to sit in, I might change the subject and say, I want to come back to this conversation when I am less emotional about it. Right. But right now, this conversation is hurting me and I think that we should go somewhere different. And even that, I think it like puts the onus and the burden of the conversation back on the person who said the thing as opposed to me being the only one holding my emotions. Right. And I think that has been helpful for if I know the person because a stranger's not going to care. They're like, oh, look, you snowflake. But like someone who says they love you, who knows you is going to be like, shoot. I didn't mean to make you cry or I didn't mean to make you want to leave my space. I think it's helpful to like share the burden of that. And now the person is like, wait, what do I feel? And wait, now I have to feel the things as opposed to me just being able to like bleed on you and have you deal with my mess. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. But breath work has really helped me too. Because a lot of it is just like (laughs) pausing in a conversation. Or like my notes phone will get the worst. Like I'll never say it to you, but I'll be in my note like this fucking bitch. Really? Yes. You'll just like hop on your phone and express yourself to yourself? Oh yeah, all the time. Even like me and my wife can get into arguments and like she'll be the one who's like, I'm going to walk away. And then I'll be like, I can't believe she left in the middle of this conversation. I'll be like typing away on my phone and like getting it all out. And then it's out and it's like, I would never want to say that to you because I love you. Mm. And I'm glad that I got it out and I can delete the note. And now I'm in a clearer (laughs) space for when I actually talk to you about this. So I'm definitely a journaler or a, I just need to breathe person. Yeah. I love that breath work. Or smoke. Yeah. (laughs) Find any kind of breath. Uh, Exactly. The Lord giveth. I'd say like breath plus. Just add a little. Breath plus. Fun stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to get to know. You know, I've done my research, but I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit. Bria, how did you come to this work? Tell us a little bit about how you arrived in activism and arrived in writing and doing the work that you do. Yeah. So writing was definitely the asterisk that came after. It wasn't even a thought for myself. But I would say I came into activism Really personally, I was graduating high school the same year that Trayvon Martin was killed. So we were the same age Mm. and I saw a lot of myself in him because we were the same age. And also I grew up in a part of Long Island where I existed in a bubble and everyone in my town was pretty much the same socioeconomic background. It was predominantly Black and Latino. And so first Black president was like the first president I was conscious Mm. of. So it felt like I was living in a post-racial America. And then Trayvon Martin's death 
was like, oh my gosh, it really like jarred me and woke me up. And I have a little brother who I was also thinking a lot of who has a darker complexion than me and who I was just thinking of like, what do people project onto you when they see you? Mm-hmm. And you're so little and you're my baby. And knowing that you are going to grow up in a world that will see you in that way, hearing the way that Sabrina Fulton spoke of her son, it just made me think of my brother in those ways. So I started coming of age with Black Lives Matter because now I'm going through college at the same time as Black Lives Matter movement is proliferating. And I will say that what actually really pushed me into activism, not just into being more conscious of the fact that racism was very real and very present, was less Trayvon Martin's murder and more George Zimmerman's acquittal. Right. Because even when Trayvon Martin was killed, there was a part of me that absolutely believed that justice would be served. And at that time, justice to me looked like, oh, George Zimmerman is going to jail for the rest of his life. I fully believed in the criminal legal system at that time and was just like, there's no way he doesn't go to prison yeah, forever. Right. So I was going to protests and going through the motions. I remember the first digital act of activism that I did was my family had the hoodies with the Skittles and the iced tea and we all posed for the photo and did the thing. And I mm. I felt like it was contributing towards a larger conversation, but I also just was like, now it's time for the lawyers to do what they do and we're going to get that justice. And that acquittal rocked me where I was just like, what does this mean for myself, for people who I love, who look like me, who look more like Trayvon because I'm also a very light-skinned Black woman and I'm like, I don't get treated by police the same way that my brother does. And Mm -hmm. what does that mean for him that not even someone with a badge, but someone who just felt like it could hunt him down and then get away with that? And I felt so much rage. Mm -hmm. And I just was going to protest and also just needing to understand the cycle of this. Because now I'm also reading about Amadou Diallo Mm -hmm. and about Oscar Grant, who I was too young to be fully present for when they were killed by police. But now I'm just like, wait, this is a cycle. And I don't know why history made me think that we just kind of jumped from Rodney King to this. And there have been so many moments in between. I started reading a lot and learning a lot. And I was reading the new Jim Crow and realizing like this criminal justice system has always existed in this way. It's never worked for Black people especially, but definitely not for disabled people, brown people, Muslim people. And Latinx people, yeah. Exactly. I just started seeing the world a lot more clearly and then feeling like, wait, so me a couple of years ago thinking that body cameras was going to make anything different, Like, I need to get out of this. And so I think the combination of reading a lot, in addition to going to the protests, got me interested in writing because it was Mm. like, I want to connect people my age to the books from the 60s, 70s, 80s on that have honestly been like diagnosing this country so well. And those in positions of power have just been actively ignoring them. Yeah. And where were they in your school? Exact curriculum. Oh, yeah. It doesn't feel like the curriculums or the history that we learn in, like, white supremacist America, it doesn't inform people of the ways in which they can be active. Right. I mean, I don't think I read about Amadou Diallo until I was in college, maybe? And it's so intentional. Yeah. Especially, um, like, going to all these protests. And at the time, I'm at Yale University. Yeah. One of the whitest, wealthiest universities on the planet. And so I'm also looking around me and being like, they are being groomed to be the next leaders of the world, and they're not being taught about any of this. And, of course, it makes sense, because who else was groomed here and are now creating the problems that we have? The Supreme Court that we hate so much right now 
are graduates of Harvard and Yale. So what are these institutions grooming people to do and be in the world? And how do I want to disrupt that? Right. So I started by creating reading lists for my peers at Yale. A lot of people were just like, I want to be better. And it's like, great, read these books and then do something based on what you learn from them. And so I was like creating these Google Docs of reading lists and little blurbs for them, sending them out really widely. And then over time, there were people kind of telling me like, oh, you could do that professionally. Like you could publish these sorts of reading lists and you can publish works. And so I started writing first with Elle, always around policing and race. And it was really important for me to feel like I was contributing to a moment, Mm. but also to provide an intergenerational piece. Because like the first article that you brought up was the one about bell hooks. A lot of my articles are actually about Black elders and about Black theorists who came before me and activists who came before me and just wanting Gen Z and millennial activists to be connected to that work so that we don't feel like our activism just came out of nowhere. My activism does not exist without Abel Hooks and Asada Shakur and Angela Davis, a Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Andrea Ritchie. Mm-hmm. And that's important for people to know so that they're just not like, oh, look at this cute millennial who's doing things. It's like, don't placate me. I'm a student of history. Right. And I'm actually just reciting things that I have learned that we should have and could have learned long ago because the books have been written for decades. Right. And also, like, we're not brand new to this. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I find that to be a real salve on my desire to do everything 100%. (laughs) Yes. Because to recognize that there are people already doing this work, there are people who have done it before me, and there are people who... I can learn from. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to start from zero, you know? And I think that's a really beneficial lesson to take into the work that you do. Yeah. Whatever that work looks like. One million percent. When we come back from the break... How do you help enthusiastic, well-meaning people acknowledge their power and their privilege without turning them away? That's coming up after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to ask one question about how you acknowledge 
privilege and power as you engage with social justice. Because one of the things that's hard, especially when the work that you're doing is like trying to bring new people into a particular movement, you're trying to inform them and help them have the tools. Because sometimes someone arrives in a movement with all this privilege and power and they don't know how to recognize it or they don't know how to bring that context into their struggle and they mean well Mm -hmm. and you don't want to lose them, you know, like their intentions are good. I wonder how you acknowledge privilege and power when you're engaging with social justice. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You just described my entire experience with Women's March. I was a national organizer with the 2017 Women's March and some of the subsequent actions as well. But I was actually the youngest national organizer. And that was definitely a description of that moment, not just with the attendees to the march, because there were a lot of people who attended and said, this is my first protest, or this past election was the first time I voted. And they were like, two and three and four times my age. And I was like, huh? Oh God, yeah. You've lived through so many things and none of that shocked you or enraged you enough. Mm. So that was like one thing. But actually what was harder was the fact that I was organizing with women who that was their first protest and they were the organizers of Women's March. And so it was mind blowing to sit in rooms of people who were being elevated and who were being given a lot of microphones to speak and who thought a lot of themselves. And I understood it because they really felt the need to really affirm and validate themselves after this election where a very sexist man was elected. And so I got the entry point. But at the same time, I think it's about welcoming people and not settling for that entry point. Because the reality was a lot of those women who we were co-organizing with wanted Women's March to only speak about gender and not touch on race, not touch on ability, not touch on sexuality. Right. Well, I'm a queer Black woman, so I can't be in this space and not talk about sexuality and race. It's not going to happen because actually I feel deepest about racism and addressing white supremacy, because if we do that, then we'd have to address patriarchy and everything else. So how I deal with it, Mm -hmm. I think you can't coddle people. Mm. And I think people who want to be coddled are not ready to be in the movement yet. And I think that's important, is to recognize that sometimes we need to have prerequisites for the spaces that we're coming into. And we need to have a standard of what it means to be in this movement. Mm. And that is something that I really have learned from movements past. The Black Panther Party, for example, is a political organization that I have so much admiration for. I have a tattoo for them on my shoulder. And every single person who entered that organization had to read certain texts, had to go through certain trainings. And sometimes we want to make things too easy for people that they come in with all their baggage, with all their preconceived notions, and they're actually hurting people in spaces that they're supposed to be in solidarity with people in. And it's like, no, we have to have a higher standard for people and say... Welcome. I'm so glad that this activated you. And if you care about feminism, you have to care about these things too. And so with Women's March, that looks like us developing unity principles. So it wasn't just like women coming to this march because they felt personally offended, but they weren't willing to speak up for women of color or disabled women. Or trans women. Or or queer women or trans women. Right. And so those unity principles, a lot of people were upset about because there were people saying, oh, I'm not invited to the Women's March because I don't agree with this part of the unity principles. And we were really reiterating to people like, look, you are welcome to come. And that doesn't mean that you agree with and know each of these issues 100% yet, 
But you have to know that this is what we stand on. And this is what you're going to come and hear us talk about. And you have to be willing to hear that. Mm-hmm. We're willing to let you come as you are, but you can't leave in the same way that you came. You have to be transformed. And if you're not willing to be transformed, then you are actually only interested in power for you, not redistributing power for all. And that's not okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it reminds me of like changing your profile picture on social media. (laughs) For some people, that's a really big step for them. And that's what they're sort of able to do. And for other people, that is not enough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And both of those realities can be true. And I think that what you're saying is creating principles. Like if you step into this, these are the things that you're standing for. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful declaration. It's sort of like a declaration of principles, right? Mm-hmm. One million percent. And again, like to what you said, there's also empathy for people's entry points. And I think any true activist or organizer worth their chops or whatever the phrase is, has a level of empathy for the fact that there was once a point where I was a cringy baby activist. Yeah who didn't know things. And for example, that first act, me and my family in our living room, taking a picture with our hoodies up, Skittles and iced tea. Was that going to actually achieve justice for Trayvon Martin or for his family? No. Did we feel really good about ourselves afterwards and feel like we had done something? Yes. And in that moment, did that Black family need something to hold on to that even if it wasn't going to have a huge impact, it was declaring our values to the people in our immediate circle. And it gave us something to do that we weren't just wringing our hands feeling helpless. And so I think it's also acknowledging, like, what do people need at different stages of their activism? Mm -hmm. And then giving them the tools to continue growing. It's like, I don't want you to stay there. So for 10 years, all you're doing are posting pictures on social media. Yeah. But I'm okay if that's your first act and this is your entry point. And I'm going to bring you into it because, again, it's like my first entry point was Trayvon. But it took organizers being like, okay, so if you can empathize with Trayvon Martin, you can absolutely empathize with other victims of vigilante and police violence as well. Mm -hmm. And if you can empathize with all of them, you'll realize like there are too many individuals for me to empathize with. And that's a problem. Why are there so many victims of this violence? And ooh, now you're getting the point. And now you want to grab at it from the roots as opposed to staying at a place where I'm only activated by a cool story. Yeah. I mean... I kind of want to ask you a question that flips what you just said around a little bit, which is you're a police abolitionist Mm -hmm. and somebody who wants to do away with the whole prison industrial complex. That's a pretty serious component of the activism that you do. Mm -hmm. So I wonder when people who have different objectives, who don't share those convictions, when they come to the movement wanting to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, how do you handle that? Like, what do you do? Mm. Yeah, I believe this is something I learned from Miriam Kaba, mm-hmm. who is the abolitionist I learned the most from. If you have not read We Do This Till We Free Us, you must go get it now. You gotta. You have to go get it right now. One of the best to ever do it. Oh, like quite literally. And something that she said a while back, I'm going to butcher it, so I'm just going to paraphrase. Yeah. As long as you are not standing in the way of my long-term goals towards abolition— we can still work together. Mm. So I organize a lot with people who are for criminal justice reform, are not quite at abolition, but the way that they fight for criminal justice reform does not give more power 
to the criminal legal system. I see. So I'm okay with that. Right. I'm okay if you don't want to get rid of it altogether, but you're not fighting for bigger budgets. You're not fighting for more surveillance systems. Mm -hmm. You're not fighting for, oh, all they need is higher pay. Like more training. Right. More body cameras. Like as long as you're not that person, we can work together. Yeah. And so I'm on the board of an incredible organization, The Gathering for Justice, that is not an explicitly abolitionist organization, but has very abolitionist goals of ending child's incarceration. Once we end child incarceration and we acknowledge that prisons and police do not work for young people, right. then we can say, well, you know, it sounds like crunchy, as people say, but like every person has an inner child. And did we not acknowledge someone's pain at an early enough age that we're now dealing with their unhealed trauma and how they're hurting other people? Yeah. And so if we can end child incarceration and acknowledge that it hurts more than it helps, then we can say the same for adults one day. Right. It's on the path towards abolition for me. And even if not everyone in the organization believes in abolition, I don't believe that anyone in the organization is actively working against abolition. And so we can work together, even if that's not for abolition, even if it's for people who are just sort of like, for example, their feminist Feminism is not yet at the, we need to decriminalize sex work because sex work is work. They might not be there yet, but they can acknowledge that slut shaming is bad. Okay, cool. Let's start there. That's your entry point. Hopefully over time, I can convince you that sex work is work and that we need to go deeper, but we can start here. Right. Well, I think that that is a really strong lesson for listeners in that like, you don't have to be the perfect organizer and you don't have to know everything when you first step into whatever it is that you want to organize around. But it is really important that you acknowledge your privilege and power and think about the ways that what you believe interact with the things that other people believe. Like if you really want to be shoulder to shoulder you got to acknowledge what are the things that I'm fighting for. Yeah. I think it's important because one of the things that's hard is not being judgmental of people who are new, who are learning, who are willing to learn, but haven't really done that reading just yet, mm -hmm. which I think can be complicated. <laughs> yeah, 1 million percent. And I think sometimes I like to level set with people and remind them that I also still don't have all the answers, but certainly did not at other points. And so... In helping people acknowledge their own privilege, I sometimes start by acknowledging my own and kind of model for them. Like, it takes nothing from me to say, yes, I'm a queer Black woman, and there are Black people way more impacted in these issues by nature of the fact that I am thin, by nature that I'm able-bodied, by nature that I am documented and a U.S. citizen, that I'm fair-skinned. Like, there are certain things that I am privileged mm -hmm. by. That you're cis, that you pass, that you... Exactly. Yeah. So all of these things, it takes nothing from me to say that. And actually, it allows me to deepen my analysis of like, okay, so if I'm fighting for the person who's going to be most impacted, that's always going to help me. Because if police know that they can't treat dark-skinned Black femmes any kind of way and use violence against them, then they certainly won't use it against me by nature of how colorism and racism and transphobia work. Yeah. If I'm only fighting for me, though, then I'm going to leave people out every time. But I have to be willing to fight for people who, if I'm really standing shoulder to shoulder with you, I see you and I want to fight for you too. It becomes less personal and more like, wait, I'm fighting for us all, yeah. not just for myself. And I think that can only happen when we acknowledge our privilege. Yeah. I want to move on to something that is a huge part of why I wanted to talk to you. Mm -hmm. I have a question about sort of like practical things 
that you recommend people do? I think it's very easy to feel very overwhelmed. I think that there is a lot going on. There are a lot of different issues that are radicalizing or that are going to push people towards wanting to organize. Mm -hmm. I want to know practical, like, what's one thing that you recommend people do? And furthermore, like, how can we think sustainably about the things that we're capable of doing? Yeah. I love that you brought up sustainability already because I had my one action and it is in my opinion, what will allow our movements to really be withstanding and to survive kind of the attention span of media, which is to join a local organization, mm. specifically a local progressive organization. But like, I'm purposely being vague because I want you being the listener to find whatever organization is connected to that issue for you, but a local one. And I say that because a lot of people, when they become activated, they go through this phase of wanting to change the world. And they believe that the only way to do that is if they have a huge following or if they are part of national politics. And it never works that way. I have to tell you that local organizers get shit done way more frequently mm. than national organizers do. That is not to say that national organizers are not needed, because I do believe that we need people who can focus on national policy and who can thread together the things that are happening across the country. But local organizers do it. It's always local organizers. So whether that's a union, whether that's a local political organization, whether that's a nonprofit, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that, one, is because that is going to be a group that will keep you accountable. National organizers cannot follow up with every single person who makes one donation and say, hey, we haven't heard from you since. Right. A local organizer will say, hey, you came to that first meeting. We haven't seen you in a while. We'd really love for you to come back. And this is why these are the things we're doing. We're not just planning these activities and these protests and these rallies, which are the exciting and sexy things that people want to be a part of. We're also reading books together. Mm -hmm. We're planning film screenings together. We're canvassing our community and having conversations with elders. And we are going into schools and we're doing X, Y. You're able to have so much more of an impact because you know the community you live in. You're surrounded by people who also know the community that they live in. And so you're able to get so much more specific than I cannot possibly know everyone in the country's experience so I have to be somewhat broad. Right. And that gives a lot of people wiggle room to avoid accountability. One thing that has really helped me, especially when I've been feeling overwhelmed, and this is something that I learned from my good pal, Sally Tamarkin. Shout out to you, Sals. <laughs> is like, I was feeling really overwhelmed. And then I started delivering meals for the local food collaborative. I started, whenever we went to the grocery store, stocking the community fridge on my way home, you know, buying a bunch of perishable food and putting it in the community fridge. And those, I didn't think that it was going to help. Mm -hmm. And it really helped. Yeah. And I think that sometimes it's very easy, like you said, to lose sight of the community that you're a part of mm -hmm. and looking left and right and seeing who in your community is already doing work that you care about and getting involved in that particular way can be a really helpful first step. Oh, yeah. And also, I think, for people who really engage, it becomes way more than their first step. It actually like leads to a deeper radicalization because again, when a lot of national politics are really rooted in theory, because you need to have a vision that is broad enough to match for a lot of different experiences around the country, especially a country as diverse as the U.S. But what's interesting about local politics is like you are 
face to face with the material injustices that people are dealing with. So for example, what you just said, like delivering food makes you realize how many people depend on a collaborative like this. And then it makes you wonder like, well, what were they doing before this? Oh, they were hungry. People in my community were hungry Mm. and I wasn't even attuned to that because I was taking a bus to DC and thinking that was like the best form of activism that I could do and not really realizing that like there are so many things in my backyard to address. And I started because I cared about Trayvon Martin, who was states away. And then I started caring about people in my hometown. Mm. And then I started looking at Long Island in different ways and being like, wait a second, I'm so busy telling the rest of the country what's going on. And I live in one of the most segregated parts of the nation. Mm. And the police forces regularly brutalize people and they get paid buku salaries. And I have a problem with that. And I want to be a part of the organizing here. Yeah, It just allows you to build community in ways that are a lot more on the nose. Like it's not just like policing is bad. It's like policing here is horrible. And I actually know a lot of people here. Right. And this is the name of the police chief. And this is the name of the... I know them. Because you're always going to understand your local context better than you're going to understand the sort of national and international implications. Yeah. And you know more people who are also going to care about it. Because the thing is, like, when I care about what's happening in Florida, I don't know anyone who lives in Florida. So I'm doing what I can from here. But it's not like I can talk to people who can actually vote there, who can actually be on the ground there. But when something's happening in Long Island, even when I'm not home, because now I live in Georgia, I can call my friend who I know's mom is the president of the PTA and be like, hey, have you heard about this? Has your mom heard about this? Right. She should get other parent teacher friends to care about that. And then my parents are pastors. And so I can say, mom, the church should be talking about this. Clergy should be talking about this. And so quite literally, one of the most recent actions that I was able to co-organize during the pandemic was me flying back home because there was an act of police brutality. And we did a rally and press conference from the stairs of my grandparents' church. And we had a bunch of people that I went to high school with. And it just felt like, look at this crowd that we were able to bring out. And who cares if media isn't paying attention to this. Like, I don't care if no one on social media, it's not trending or whatever. And I think I was able to realize that I've seen both sides. Sometimes I've been a part of things that were the largest demonstration in U.S. history, and it was trending and everyone was talking about it. And it felt like we had less impact than this thing that no one but my local paper and radio station cared about. But we got things done. We got things passed. We got budgets changed. And I think when people see how much change, I think they're less jaded because a lot of people look at national politics and say, oh, I voted and I did this and I did that. And I don't feel the difference. And it's like, partly because national politics trickles down. And if you put that same energy into local politics and you got your mayor out of office and got someone new and exciting in office, you'd actually feel a huge difference because it would be more immediate. And you'd also be able to see on the ground like what is happening. So I think it gives people more inspiration when they're able to have local wins and then they can turn around and be like, wait, this isn't all gloom and doom. Like we are able to really build the world we want to live in. Yes. Bria. I just, I'm so grateful to you. I feel very lucky to be sharing this space with you right now. Likewise. This has been one of the best conversations I've been a part of. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I feel very inspired by what you had to say today. And I know our listeners will too. Thank you. And if I could just leave with a quote, I love this quote so much. On the note of inspiration, Arundhati Roy said, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And I love that quote because it reminds us that it is not inherent, it is not inevitable that the world is going to be shitty and difficult and challenging. We've survived 
more challenging things in the past, we will continue to survive the challenging moments that we're in. And if we think of the world in that personification way, like she's on her way, like she's literally in the lift. (laughs) We're just waiting for her to send the ETA. Let's just prepare for her arrival. Like when this other world gets here, let's be ready. And if everyone acted like that and spoke to their family members and their colleagues and their neighbors in that way and organized locally in that way, by the time she got here, we'd realize she arrived because we had prepared for her, not the other way around. Boom. <laughs> I mean, I'm an easy cry, but wow. <laughs> I just got emotional. Oh, God. I love that. It's the radical love. You're feeling all the things. Bria Baker, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Julia. Bria Baker is currently working on a book about Black land ownership and the legacy of land theft in America. You can follow her on Instagram at freckledwhileblack. Even better on Vox.com is Julia Rubin, Alana Oaken, and Melinda Fakwade. This podcast is a special series on Vox Conversations produced in collaboration with the wonderful Vox Conversations team. Special thanks to Amber Hall, Amy Drozdowska, Eric Janikis, and Patrick Boyd. Find us on the web at vox.com slash even hyphen better. And stay tuned for more episodes every Thursday this month with me, your girl, Julia Furlan. Thank you so much for listening. Listening. 